At that moment, the Lord said to me, this is why I placed you on the White House staff. Welcome to Meridian Magazine's How I Know podcast. This is Scott and Maureen Proctor, and we are delighted to be with you again this week. And this week we have with us an absolutely wonderful guest that we've been so excited to interview. His name is Larry Eastland, and he has so much interesting experience behind him. Right now he's the Assistant Director for the American Northwest Communications Council for the Church, which means he gets to do all kinds of outreach, meeting with other churches, uh, becoming familiar with uh, ministers and pastors and priests and the people that attend there, which is a, a great thing. He was a YSA bishop for seven years and a member of a mission presidency. And professionally, he had many positions within the Reagan White House and then was the assistant to the president of um, the United States when Gerald Ford was the president. But he has something that he's most proud of, and you wouldn't think that he was most proud of. What is that, Larry? Well, other than my family, let's start there. Other than my family, I had the privilege of being a Marine Corps officer. Now tell us why that would, was such a privilege for you when you've got all these other incredible things you've done. Well, growing up uh, in a small town in Idaho, uh, my grandparents were my parents. Uh, and in fact, my grandfather was 100 when I was in high school. So I had the oldest dad in the PTA. Um, but I was always in music and I was in debate and I was in those kind of things, not athletics. It just... Uh, was not an athlete. So when I was in my junior year at BYU, that's when the Vietnam War really started to uh, heat up. And as I looked around at uh, a lot of the elite institutions that were putting out graduates who found ways not to serve, I was reminded of my grandfather when I first went into his bedroom as I was leaving for BYU a few years before that. And my granddad took my hand and he looked at me and he said, son, the good Lord and this country have been mighty good to you. Now you go out and be good to them. And I never forgot that. And so I went uh, up to uh, Fort Douglas and Salt Lake and just signed into the Marine Corps uh, and to go to OCS. I was at BYU another year after that, but immediately upon graduation, uh, went into the Marine Corps as, a, as an officer candidate, which you do for 10, 10 weeks, where after about the second week there, my greatest fear was I was going to live through the whole experience. Uh, it was that tough. But it became a formative moment for me to understand what I could do and the capabilities that I did have, not just physically, but in terms of leadership in tough circumstances. So that in and of itself uh, gave me the confidence in who I was and who I could become. But there was a moment there that I will cherish forever. I was the second shortest guy there. I mean, most of these guys were big athletes and so forth. So I kind of got always put at the end of the line. They had what was called the hill trail. And that's misnamed. And it's a series of hills. You go up and down and up and down and up and down. And it's all sand. And it was, you know, about 95 degrees. And we were wearing a pack with a bunch of rocks in it and a rifle and a helmet. And it was hot and we were tired. 
I got to a particular place where we stopped for a two-minute rest, and I couldn't stop perspiring. Well, I knew enough about medicine. My granddad was a doctor, and, and I accompanied him to places that I was going what was called heat exhaustion. At the end of heat exhaustion comes heat stroke, and that's when there's no more perspiration left, and you just start burning up. I got to the last hill. <clears throat> I really wanted to succeed, and this weeded out those who the Marine Corps was going to make officers and those who they, who they were not. And by the way, 60% failed, so I knew that the ratio was not good. But I actually went physically blind. And I grabbed the pack of the guy in front of me and said, I got to hold on. And as we went up that hill, about halfway up, I knew I was done. And I said a prayer. I said, Father, I cannot take another step. God said to me, yes, you can. And at that moment, I did put my foot out and put my foot out, made it over the hill, got to the other side, collapsed. They put me in the hospital and put me in ice. But I did complete it. And that's the point. I took it as far as I could. But at that moment, the Lord took over. And that taught me that as long as I was willing to do everything that I could, the Lord was going to be there to make up the difference. And that's that's the message of the gospel. What we can't what we can't do, the Savior will do. And we have to allow him to do that. And that is a moment that changed my life. That changed my life. Well, that wasn't the only moment that you remember so well when you were in the Marines. I think there was another one too. Yeah, this is this one was a fun time. Um after I got back from Vietnam, I was there a year and a half. I was a Marine infantry commander, a, a base, fire base commander up in the DMZ area. And uh, then the last couple of months, I was assigned to what was called Civic Action, and we went out and worked with the local people. When I got back from Vietnam, uh, I spent a year at sea duty uh, with the Navy, and we pulled into a port, uh, uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And they had at the time what was called a ship-to-shore phone. Uh, because, I mean, you know, no cell phones or any of that at that time. And you could go out and call your family or your friends and let them know your ship was in port. And I'd been back uh, uh, from Vietnam a year at that time uh, at sea. Well, there was a phone call waiting for me when I got there. And it was from a friend of mine, Barry, that I'd been in Vietnam with. And he said, Larry, what are you doing this Saturday? And I said, I was single, at the, I was still single at the time, and I had nothing in mind I said, well, I'm not doing anything. What, what do you have in mind? He said, I'd like to have you baptize my wife and me in the Susquehanna River where Joseph and Oliver were baptized. And I stopped and I said, Barry, the last time I saw you, we were in a rocket attack and you were in a hoot stealing beer from the guys next door because they were hiding. What happened? And he said, well, when I got home, Meridian, Mississippi said, when I got home, I looked around at what was going on in the country. And I said to my wife, you know, we really ought to take our family and go to church. And she said, Barry, we don't have a church. He said, you know, I had a buddy in Vietnam. Why don't we go try his church? 
They walked right into that little branch in Meridian, Mississippi. And then after a few weeks, they called me. We went up to the Susquehanna River, right at the spot where Joseph and Oliver were baptized. And I was able to baptize my friend and his wife and the kids in the Susquehanna River. And we're still buddies today. That is so sweet. What a wonderful experience. So you have these experiences as a Marine Corps officer. And now uh, you've been through many years. You've gone through so much uh, professionally and in the church. And you end up in, in the White House and you're there as an assistant to President Ford. There have to be experiences where you are above your head and you've got to have inspiration or guidance. Did you have those kind of experiences in the, in the midst of you know, being surrounded by so many important people? I'll tell you one experience um, from directly in the White House, because it, def- it defines for me in my mind now that I look back on it. As you know, President Ford was appointed and then, and then approved by the uh, Congress to be president. He's the only president who was never elected. And so therefore, uh, in 1976, um, there was a convention. And by the way, this is the last a convention of either political party where the convention itself was co- uh, contested. We've never had one since then. And that was between uh, President Ford and, at the time, Governor Reagan of California. Well, we had to go out and get delegates. And so, you know, we, we flew all the time all over the country talking to delegates to get delegates to the convention. We flew into, uh, we flew into Jefferson City, Missouri. And we're meeting with uh, Governor Kit Bond, really great guy, uh, later Senator Kit Bond, but uh, Governor Kit Bond. And I think it was at a Howard Johnson's. I can't remember for sure. But anyway, we were we, we were meeting with delegates and running them in and out. And the president and the governor were uh, talking with them about uh, being delegates to the National Convention, uh, pledged to President Ford. Governor Bond came out and he walked up to me. I knew I knew him not not really well at the time, although I did better later. And he looked at me and he said, Larry, you're a Mormon, aren't you? And I said, yes, uh, Governor, I am. He said, what is this thing called an extermination order and what is that all about? At that moment, the Lord said to me, this is why I placed you on the White House staff. I always tell people, I thought I was there because I was brilliant. But what I thought was, I was just useful, that's all. I said, Governor, let me get back to the White House and I will call you. So I got back to the White House and uh, called him, talked with him, talked with his staff. And as it turns out, uh, the reorganized church, uh, as it was called at that time, it's now Community of Christ, but the reorganized church went to him and said the extermination order from Governor Boggs is still on the books. This is 1976. And we we would like to have you issue a governor's order to expunge the record because it's not right that it's still on the books. Well, I got in touch with President Kimball's office uh, through some contacts and friends. And and President Kimball said, the record is not to be expunged. It is to be held accountable to the last day, but it is to be rescinded. 
So go back and work with the governor's office to get it rescinded so that it is no longer the law of Missouri. So through some negotiations back and forth uh, with the governor's office, he he finally just said, well, just write it. So I did. I wrote it. And that was the draft that was used. And then I wrote the press release, which the church announced at the April General Conference. Once in a while in our lives, we have an opportunity to do something that the Lord needs to have done, not that we need to have done and ask the Lord to help us get it done. That probably is something I will cherish forever, forever. You know, that's such an important thing to have been a part of, and I am fascinated by President Kimball's response that it not be expunged, but rescinded so that those who did it can be held accountable. That's a remarkable thing because our readers may not understand the extent of the extermination order, but it meant that anyone in Missouri could kill any Mormon and they would not be held uh, guilty in any way or sort. In fact, Parley P. Pratt said of it, it said nothing of criminals. It made no allusions to punishing crime and protecting innocent. It was sufficient to be called a Mormon, a peaceable family just immigrating or passing through the country, a missionary going or coming on his peaceable errand of mercy, an aged soldier of the American Revolution on his deathbed, a widow with her babes, the tender wife or helpless orphan, all were included in this order of wholesale extermination or banishment. Now, that was a very, very significant thing, and, and many did die at the hands of Missourians um, and called it legitimate because of this order. And what an honor to have been a part of seeing this rescinded. It was. And by the way, I then uh, later uh, in the year uh, became the director of all the operations for the, uh, for the president at the Republican National Con- uh, Convention, which was held in Kansas City and became very close to the leadership of uh, the reorganized church um, and wonderful people. I, I had I had such a good experience, and I have ever since then. I worked uh, uh, two years ago with the Community of Christ on some things and uh, really learned to appreciate their goodness and what, what they're trying to do and what they want to do on behalf of the Savior, too. So that earlier experience really gave me a positive feeling uh, something you don't always get when you're a child and you hear somebody's different than you are. And I've learned that there are a lot of different people out there who are doing a lot of good on behalf of the Savior. No, that's such a wonderful insight into our brothers and sisters and other faiths. Now, I remember, Larry, uh, we were meeting with you a lot during the time that you were a YSA bishop and you uh, were that for seven years. And I remember, uh, I think it was during that time that you were putting together those large YSA conferences in California. Isn't that correct? Yes, I ran two in 2009, 2012, and then two years. And that we had 16,000 people at 10 list locations at the same time. Uh, and then two years ago, uh, three and two years ago, because of the pandemic, uh, ran the uh, 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 Singles Conference for the Church, which was all of the North America West area and all of the singles of whatever age. And we had as many as 40,000 attend those. That was an interesting experience because we started out, when I was first given the assignment uh, by the area presidency, we started out in a in-person conference like we'd done in California for the two conferences. 
that was December 2019. And after an entire plan put together and all of the wards and stakes identified and everything, something called a pandemic hit. So at that point, we then went back to the drawing boards and we were then going to do a virtual conference. And so we then spent a year working on putting together a virtual conference with 100 workshops and all of those kinds of things that people could uh, tune into. And then, and then came 2021, and by the time we got to March, I think it was, people began to say, I'm tired of doing everything virtual. I am ready to get back and do something personally. In fact, uh, Elder Whiting, uh, who, uh, who I was re- responsible to at one point, I sent him a text and said, let's do a quick Zoom. And he wrote back and, and he sent me a text back and said, I'm sick of Zoom. Just give me a call. Anyway. So what we did at that point was we did a hybrid. We did, uh, if they want, if the stakes wanted to do it in a location, they could do that. And we then supplemented that with uh, a huge number of online uh, workshops, which we made available. And uh, we did something else, which I really was gratified for. Uh, My son was one of the deputies and he's, you know, far smarter than I am. He's now a mission president, but he came up with an idea called the gathering place. And that was that the church is very, very good geographically, wards, stakes, and so forth. And anything that deals with someone in your neighborhood or someone in your ward, church is really very good at that. But human beings live life by their interests, not by their geography. And so we created the gathering place where when they signed up for the conference, they could say what they really would like to talk to other people about. And they formed their own groups. And they formed more than 100 different groups. Some people wanted anyone who was there who wanted to talk about cooking, and somebody else wanted to talk about bike riding or whatever. But they formed 100 of these groups where they just talked to people all over the North and West West area on their own sort of Zoom, if you want to put it in in, in that sense. But the one I remember most was the 35-year-old single mother who said, thank you for this opportunity to put together a group of mother single mothers with children with special needs because for the very first time, I was able to talk with others who were going through exactly what I was going through. Those were the kind of things we got to do in the conferences that we ran. Wonderful opportunity. I'm especially interested in what you've learned about the YSAs, both positive and uh you know, in the way of counsel, because I know that you have been concerned about them for a long time, but in hopeful ways, you've told us many positive things about them. Uh, you know, what is the struggle that they face in, in their faith and in their, um, you know, in their journey, in, in your experience? First, let me say how much I love young single adults. And I think that's one of the greatest opportunities I've ever had in my life of any kind, was the privilege of being what many tell me was the longest serving YSA bishop. And I always say that's because the Lord said, we're going to let him stay there until he gets it right. But uh, the reality is young single adults have spent how many years being told what their life is going to be like when they're a beehive, when they're a scout, when they're going through those growing and maturing years, understand that we lose about 50% by the time they get to be 18. We lose two at deacon, three at teacher, and two at priest. 
So by the time they're 18, almost half of our our youth are either out or on their way out, and it's difficult. So those that have stayed, those that have become ready to be young single adults, they have a vision in their mind of what we've told them their life is going to be. Stay active in the church, go on a mission, get married in the temple, have kids, life ever after. But when they become young single adults, daily living takes on a great importance. And the challenges that they face in their life are just tremendous. Because basically, from about 18 to 28, I call that the decade of decision. Because they will make virtually every great decision that they're going to make in their life between those ages of 18 and 28. Now, there are exceptions and there are, you know, things that happen in 30s and 40s. But basically, the decisions that they make in that decade are the decisions that stay with them for the rest of their life. And so for them to go through that with a vision in their mind of what they can expect And then the challenges that come along that make that questionable to them, repentance that they need to go through, talking with a bishop that they need to to talk with, the feeling of failure that they go through and that they didn't live up to what they thought they should. Those are all, those are the bigger issues than the specific moral issues that they face. Although pornography is a huge, huge issue. Uh, And that involves, uh, 70% 70% uh, of the men and 30% of the women. So it isn't just uh, young men that face that. But their, but their faith in themselves as a disciple of the Savior gets questioned at every step of the way when they see other people doing other things seemingly very happy, and they're here trying to live the gospel and not living up to that dream that they thought they were going to be, not just that they were taught, but that they thought they were going to be. And to see to see them finally come through that, to see them finally find their place and move on and do wonderful things. And I hear from dozens of them still today, and they'll send me a picture of them and their wife or their husband and three or four kids and what they're doing professionally. How grateful I am that they remained faithful. That, that they saw the challenges and that they accepted that. And even though, even though they faced some daily issues they had to deal with with a bishop, they came through it. And then there's some that didn't. And, and that's heartbreaking. And that's heartbreaking. Now, the, hardest, the hardest moment is when they turn 30 and they're no longer allowed, so to speak, to go to the YSA ward that they have spent the last eight, nine years in, whether it's a single ward or or multiple of those wards, and they walk out of the church and say, I'm a failure. The church failed me. I failed the church. I failed my family. I failed my parents. I'm still single. It didn't happen for me. That's a tough, tough time for them. And your heart aches for them to get them to, to, to stay and keep working at it. You must have spent a lot of time on your knees praying over that calling and over those single adults. Did you find any revelation that seemed to empower you to do that job, that difficult job that you had? When they walked in the door, 
and I knew they had something to say. And, and by the way, my ward, uh, Santa Monica ward at that time had about 300 active and it rotated constantly because it was the ward to Hollywood. So I went through almost 2,500 young people in that seven years, but they would come in for counseling and they would walk in and I could see in their face. And I would say, now, before you tell me what you think I ought to know, let me tell you two things. Number one, I know you feel very alone, but you're no longer alone. You have a bishop that loves you. You have a savior who's atoned. So whatever you have to tell me, the three of us will get that taken care of. And the second is you feel a failure. But I'm here to tell you, you're here today. So you're a success. So I want you to look at yourself as a success. And there's someone who has a team in place that'll get you across the bridge. And with that, they would just open up their heart. And it was, you could see with every word, the burden lift. And I think those were the great moments of being a YSA bishop. The socials and all the rest of that were fun, and we did a lot of great things. Uh, we we clothed a lot of missionaries. We we uh, completely reorganized a a, a major uh, youth organization in Compton, California, and the facilities and everything. But the real gratitude, in my mind, was the privilege I had of helping get them across the bridge from, as I say, the, the bishop who was their best friend's uh, the father that they didn't want to talk to, uh, to the bishop they were going to have. So I always considered that I'm the bishop on the bridge. I'm going to get them to the other side. And those were great moments, great moments. So you're now the chairman of the board of the John A. Whitstow Foundation. And we know that this foundation does a lot of good and has a lot of vision. What are you doing there and what are they doing and what, what's your vision and how is the Lord involved with this? In 2014, USC came and asked and said, we, we would like to do some special conferences and seminars with the Latter-day Saints. Uh, this was the uh, uh, Dean of, Re of Religious Life. and. He said, you know, there are only, by the way, USC has the largest on-campus religious uh, community of any university in America. There are 90 religious organizations on the USC campus. The next closest is uh, Stanford with 12. So we felt like we were at the right place where, where, where we really could, could, could make a difference with the religious council there. And so we, we worked to put together a, a, uh, a major address on campus by a major church leader to launch an effort to expand the church's relationships on campus. And uh, fortunately for us, President Uchtdorf was the one who said yes. And um, then we decided, well, what are we going to call it? And we, we decided to call it the John A. Widso Lecture. And the reason was because in 1935, the president of USC, unbeknownst to me at the time, by the way, uh, I had read in a book that that uh, 
that John A. Widsoe had given a, a lecture at USC. And so I, I traced that down and found out that the president of USC called Hebert J. Grant and asked them to send a Latter-day Saint scholar to USC for a year to teach in the religion department for a credit. And that was the first time any uh, secular university had ever asked USC to do that outside of Utah. And so th they sent John A. Widsoe, who was at the time an apostle. And by the way, that also, because he was on campus for a year, he began to teach at uh, UCLA and, and bring Latter-day Saint students together that were at USC. That opened up the Institute of Religion program to the world. So that, that really was founded in essence at USC. So we decided to name them the, uh, the lecture, the John A. Widsoe lecture. And that's the one that President Widsoe, uh, President Uchtdorf gave. He was, can, can you, can you say this about a church leader that he was a superstar? I mean, is, is that legitimate to say that? Cause he really was. What he said was so profound. And it was so well received by the faculty, the administration, the religious community that they came back and said, let's continue the uh, this uh, relationship. We saw that as an opportunity to create a foundation in Los Angeles, based in Los Angeles, but worldwide for interfaith engagement, where we could bring together scholars from all over the world to talk about the things we had in common, the things we had that were different from one another, but how we could work together as a faith community to make our communities, our nations better, to become the moral voice united, not, not divided, but the, 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 the faith voice united to give the moral basis all the way up to governments. And we began that effort with that in mind. And we have now continued that uh, in two or three ways. We, uh, we started a series called Understanding, Understanding Our Neighbors, a series of books. And we've been at that about five, five years. Um, and this was because of a conversation in which, um, again, President Uchtdorf had made a comment to me that he had read a newspaper article that said what Mormons believe. And he said, well, if they want to know what we believe, why don't they ask us? You know, we're the world's experts on what we believe. And that caused me to think, but we do that to other people, too. We tell our Latter-day Saints what other people believe. And so we created a book series where we have a Catholic scholar who wrote, who has written about what Catholics believe and what their history is so that it's 100 percent accurate. And combined with a Latter-day Saint scholar who then helps make that understandable to a Latter-day Saint audience, high school graduate level. So we have now a book on what understanding your Catholic neighbors, understanding our Jewish neighbors, understanding our Islamic neighbors, understanding our evangelical neighbors. And we're on volume five, which is understanding our Eastern Christian neighbors. The second is we've created a series of seminars, which we, we host at, at USC. And the advantage of that is it's not the church's school. So therefore, we get the kind of scholars who maybe would be more reluctant to come to BYU. I love BYU, so that's not the point I'm making. We did one on sacred space where we had from every major religious denomination 
come together at USC and talk about what they considered sacred space was to them. For us, of course, churches and temples, primarily temples, and um, other synagogues or, uh, or other houses of worship where we talked and, and exchanged with a, one another sacred space and sacred clothing and how that empowers the individual to understand more clearly the symbols of the religious tradition that they have. A third is we realized one day that we all read the same words in the New Testament, Christian scholars do, and look at the variety of ways in which, I mean, I understand there are different translations of the, of the New Testament, the variety of ways in which Christian religions look at words. And so we created what was called the New Testament Comparative Passages Project, where we brought together and are still meeting, by the way, twice a year, major religious uh, scholars, presidents of universities, provosts of universities, deans of universities, in eight major Christian religions to discuss critical passages that define us, but which also show differences between the Catholics and the Evangelicals and the Latter-day Saints and the Eastern Orthodox. And now that's all been recorded, and we're working through the papers that each of them have written so that we can put this together as uh, briefings on critical passages. For example, uh, critical passages, the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened there? Critical passages, what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? Critical passage was Peter's confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by doing that, we've been able to help create a community of religious scholars working together to understand Christianity better from all the perspectives that are being brought to it including Bob Millett, who's our great scholar, who is uh, our representative on that, and who sort of chairs the panel, if you want to put it that way. Been meeting now for four or five years, and twice a year. Uh, those are the things that the Winslow Foundation has been doing. We now are expanding that to creating uh, a global council, which we have in place of about 30 uh, uh either scholars or religious leaders, Latter-day Saints from around the world, who are now advising us on how to take what we're doing globally. And out of that, we've created what's called the Global Young Leaders Network, because once, once our young leaders graduate from college or law school or medical school, they're on their own out there. The doctor in Zimbabwe who knows how to be a doctor but now is a small businessman and needs to know how to be a small businessman. Uh, and we're creating mentors to help mentor them on those aspects of their profession that they're not yet learned in with the hope that what we can eventually do with all of them is keep them in place as leaders in their home, leaders in the church, uh, leaders in their profession, and ultimately therefore ambassadors for the church again, interfaith, ambassadors for the church in the community that they serve in. So that's what we've been about. Well, you are very proactive in creating these programs and being part of these great things that move forward, wonderful ideas. Does the Lord direct you every step of the way, or how does that work? Does the Lord inspire you, give you an idea, and then leave you to work it out? 
what's your been your experience as you've done these big things? You know, I think it's the latter. The, the Lord with me. I can't. You know, my journey is different than everybody else's journey. So I, I can only speak for my journey. In my journey, at critical moments, the Lord has touched me, and then basically said, "Now it's up to you." Years ago, there was something I, I very much wanted to do. Talked with my family. We decided to do it. Took a lot of time. Took a few years. And I, I know that the Lord, I, I prayed about it because it was something I really wanted to do. The Lord said, go ahead. Well, in the end, it didn't work. And I remember kind of pondering through that and in my heart and so forth. And the Lord said to me, I told you to go ahead. I didn't say it was going to work. And I realized at that moment that it was something I needed to do. The process, not the end result, was something I needed to do. And there were good things that came because I felt the need to do those, even though the end result was not the end result I had thought I was going to get. And the Lord basically looked and said, Larry, that's important to you. There are things that you can do along the way for what we have in mind together that are important, and you can do them by doing this, even though the end is not the way you wanted it. The end's the way I wanted it. And that was all that mattered. So, I, you know, you get touched once in a while, and then he puts it in our hands and says, now go do it, and you're going to make some successes, and you're going to make some failures, and some things are going to work. But a lot, but it is that journey of learning. And then once in a while, I'll give you a push in a different direction because you're not quite going the way I think you need to go to get where you need to be and where I need to have you go. Sometimes it's what we need and sometimes it's what the Lord needs. But he will not do our job. But we have to learn we can't do his job. We, we have to count on that the Savior is there and that the Savior takes the place where we can no longer take. We can't do his job. We have, to, we have to learn to accept that he is the Savior, that he will save, that he will do, that he has done, and that he will continue to do that. And so we can relax. And if we have kids or we have grandkids or friends that, you know, that leave the church or have huge problems. Once we've done everything we can, we have to have the faith to step back and say, Lord, it's now yours. I've done everything I can. If there's more, tell me I can, but you're the Savior. Thank you. There's a lot of spiritual maturity involved in wanting something to go a certain way very badly, knowing the Lord could help, but hasn't made that design possible for you, things haven't worked out. And so what do you do with your faith at that point? Is that a struggle or is that something that you have learned to just trust now? Well, I get the feeling often when I pray about something, the, the Lord, he hasn't witnessed this to me, but I get the feeling that he's saying, I gave you a brain, now go work it out. You know, that's what you're there for. I mean, I think it's interesting in that before we came down, we, we agreed to come down here and be tested. And then when we get here, we test the Lord instead. And the Lord's saying, that wasn't the deal. 
The deal was, I'm here to help your test. You're not here to test me. <laughs> and we do test him, don't we? We we say, if you really loved me, this would happen. And if you really loved me, this wouldn't happen. And that's not the way it works out. Yeah, what the Lord says is, I really love you, so I'm not going to do that. And is it going to be tough? Yeah. Is that prayer going to be answered? Yes. But maybe not the way you thought it was going to be. But this is your life. This is your life. You live your life. Enjoy your life. Stub your toe. Your life. Accept responsibility. Love your life. Accept failure when it comes. Love your life. Um, be prepared to grow up spiritually. Um, be prepared to, to grow up in every way because you are no longer a little child. You have been put in a very tough place and it, it's our own version of the Marine Corps camp. You know, we're on that, that hill with all the sand and the Lord is saying, take one more step. And, and we do. And because we love him and we trust him and we say, you know how to sanctify us. And I don't have a clue how to sanctify me. The two great principles are, are the laws of justification and sanctification. Justification, another word for that is to be righteous. Sanctification, another word for that is to be holy. And, and the first one is to be justified in something or to be righteous means to make something right. So if you look at that carefully, when we're born, everything is right. We're pure. That's one of the great things about the about about our faith, and that is we're not born in sin. We're born perfect. Life is not perfect, and we don't live it perfectly. We kind of dip down, so to speak, and we make mistakes, and we make sins, and we do things we shouldn't do. But to make that right is to bring us back to zero. It doesn't take us beyond zero. If we made everything right, with with uh, the atonement of the Savior, with our own with our own repentance, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience uh, to the origins laws of the gospel. We believe that, but that brings us back to zero. Now things are right, but now we have to. Now that the Savior and we have been able to do that, He's been able to do that, and we've been able to take take advantage of, of doing that by by doing everything we can. We then have to work to become holy, which means to be sanctified. A sanctuary is some thing that has been set apart for God. And we have to then take that second step and set apart our life for God so that we then can move forward to eternal life and eternal lives. And that's the second piece of that. We have to come to a point where we say, it's no longer my will, but thy will be done. And I'll now live that. And whatever challenges come along, I'm willing to accept that. Some of them I may not want, but I'm willing to accept that, Lord. Larry Eastland, thank you so much for being with us today. We have loved this podcast together. We are grateful to Jenny Oaks Baker for the beautiful music which 
accompanies this podcast and as always we're grateful to our producer Michaela Proctor Hutchins join us again next time as we continue to explore our journey to know God have a great week and see you again soon